Well, if you have your Bibles, grab them. We'll be in Matthew 9, finishing Matthew 9, finally, <clears throat> this morning. Uh, when I was young, when I was about eight, uh, my dad got me a biography on Ben Carson, uh, who was a neurosurgeon. Uh, and at this point, he was just a neurosurgeon. I, I think he had some political aspirations there for a minute uh, a couple years ago. Uh, but <clears throat> this was just to read about his life and his path to becoming a, a neurosurgeon. It was about his upbringing, how rough his neighborhood was. He uh, was son of a single mom uh, with a, a bunch of siblings, and she was working all the time. Talked about the time where he lost his temper with his friend when he was young and tried to stab him with a pocket knife, but the blade broke on his friend's belt buckle. And he just talked about how sobering that was, realizing like the you know the jail time, a completely different trajectory his life could have taken had he stabbed his friend. And talked about how hard he worked to become a neurosurgeon, everything that he overcame. And at the end of that book. I told my dad, like, I'm going to be a doctor. I decided when I was eight, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm sure there were some other influences there, but reading his biography showed me his life, and I wanted to do it. And I tell that story because we're going through a biography of Jesus uh, that Matthew wrote uh, for the same reason, uh, to look at Jesus' life uh, to see what he did and how he did it and what he overcame and what his circumstances were like and how he responded to different people in different circumstances, uh, all with the idea that we could then uh, embody it, that we could take some of it into ourselves. All these questions about who Jesus is and what, what he was like and what he did are super important to us today uh, because even though we've had these four biographies of Jesus in the Bible for millennia, there, there's still this, this human temptation, and I think we have it especially bad as 21st century Americans to create Jesus in our own image, to let the way we are wired, the specific experiences we've had uh, define how we see Jesus or who, who we think Jesus is. And the, the most profound and hilarious example of this is in, is in the movie Talladega Nights. Uh, where the, the family, if you haven't seen the movie, the family is around the table praying for their meal, and the dad is praying, and he says, Dear sweet little baby Jesus. And the mom interrupts him and says, Honey, Jesus grew up. He didn't stay a, he didn't stay a baby the whole, the whole time. And he said, Well, I like Christmas Jesus the best. When you do the grace, you can pray to whatever Jesus you want. And then the dad's friend who's there at the table says, Well, I like to picture Jesus wearing a tuxedo t-shirt because it shows that, hey, I'm formal, but also I'm here to party because I like to party, so I want my Jesus to like to party as well. Now, I know those are ridiculous examples, but I think most of us, myself very much included, can be just as guilty as uh, of picturing the Jesus we like best. Well, the Jesus I like never talks about money because I like my money, and so I like Jesus to leave my money alone. Or the Jesus I like never bothers with my sexuality because I like to express it this way and he never addresses it. Or the Jesus I like is always nice to people and never makes anybody mad or says anything difficult because I like to be nice to people and never deal with conflict. There's just lots of little, little ways that we can miss or neglect the real Jesus, the fullness of who we see Jesus uh, displayed as in Scripture. And so today we're just going to walk through this passage in Matthew and just take a look at Jesus as he's revealed and see what we see. Uh, three main points here. We're going to look at Jesus' reputation, Jesus' heart, and Jesus' brilliant plan. Starting in verse 32. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. 
And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. So the first thing we see is that Jesus uh, interacts with the supernatural. We, this shows that Jesus uh, acknowledging that demons and supernatural personal being, evil beings, uh, were, were a reality. Uh, that, that, that's what was going on with this guy. It shows him engaging them, that there's a supernatural realm, that there's something beyond uh, just the physical realm. There's something beyond what science can uh, observe and quantify. And of course, in first century Israel, this would not have been a big deal. Uh, this would not have been uh, an issue that would have made Jesus difficult for people uh, to, to understand because they, at, at that time, they had an understanding that hadn't gone through modernism and enlightenment and the industrial revolution and all that stuff. So they just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was stuff beyond humanity, beyond what humans could understand or control or observe. But in our day and age, this is difficult. Like if we want to be people, especially for people who fancy themselves educated, uh, to see Jesus acknowledging the supernatural, something uh, as, um, as crazy as demons, that they're out there, uh, but that Jesus has authority over them and that, that they can't affect their lives. Because we can't say that, yeah, we, we like Jesus. He's a good teacher. He's got some good insight. But, of course, all that supernatural stuff is silly because is he a crazy person talking to made-up ghosts called demons? Uh, or, or are they real? Like, Will we accept who we see Jesus being and how he interacts in Scripture? We have to come to all the supernatural stuff humbly and openly. We might not get it or understand it, but following Jesus uh, just does not allow for a purely natural world. Of course, science is beautiful, it's helpful, and more and more I think it, I just see beautiful ways that it validates so much of what the Bible says and has been saying uh, for, for millennia, uh, but it, it doesn't have the, the, the final word. And here we get to Jesus' reputation. Look at the rest of verse 33. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus was a really polarizing person, meaning people either really liked him or they really hated him. And we see that here now. Uh, first, we see folks just being really hyped up. They were amazed by the work that Jesus did. For whatever what was going on uh, with this demon-possessed guy who couldn't talk, they were really stoked that that he could. And of course, right before this, he just healed a blind man and also raised a girl from, from the dead and healed a chronic illness. So uh, the crowd was impressed, but the Pharisees could not enjoy the moment. Like this guy that right in front of them got free from demon possession and could speak for the first time maybe in his whole life. And they're angry, they're upset about it, and they're discrediting it. Jesus was perfect, and he did all things well, and yet Jesus, perfectly God in the flesh, had people calling him the devil, thinking it was just like a trick of the devil to manipulate the crowds or something. Just let me say that again. The religious elite of his day called Jesus the devil. There's a couple observations about this. First, I think Matthew is being pretty witty here, because right before this, he heals two blind men, but then tells them to be mute and not go out and tell everyone. But now that they could see, they went out and blabbed everything all over the region. And now we have a mute man who can't talk come to get his tongue loosed. And through healing this mute man, we have some Pharisees who are now blind to who Jesus really is. 
he's showing us here uh, how he's given he's giving people speech to loosen tongues that have been bound by evil, but not for political gain or popularity or for hype. Uh, and then those with faith, their eyes are opened and they're able to see. But those who do not have faith, those who are unable to receive Jesus by faith, are simply just unable to see him as he is. Because faith is losing control. It's submitting to something bigger than ourselves. Letting Jesus be Jesus is losing control because we don't get to control who he is or what he's like. And these religious folks, which if we had to identify with a group here, we'd probably err on that side. Uh, they had a ton of control. They, they had a, a religious system and a church life that was working for them. And even more so, they, they were the religious elite in a country that was run by religion. So they had the power of God and politics on their side. And Jesus is turning that paradigm upside down. He's showing them something they don't have categories for, a power that is completely foreign to them. Uh, and, and because he's threatening their status quo, he would seem like the devil to them. It would seem evil uh, to them for Jesus to come and take away the power and control that they had. It would be terrifying. This is how and why Jesus' reputation uh, went bad with some people. Because on the one hand, if you struggle uh, with the not rightness, uh, and with your weakness, with the, the pain and suffering of the world, and in humility, you come to Jesus, like he will welcome you, and we will rejoice at Jesus. But if we're fighting to control things, fighting to keep them the way that they are, then Jesus is not good news. Do you ever read the Bible and see Jesus saying or doing something that seems evil, that seems wrong, like not nice or what he should be doing, or just that seems terrifying and, and off? Then consider what part of your life that is, because uh, it would seem that he's coming after that. He's coming after a part of your life that you've established this is how it should be, and Jesus is Jesus is questioning that. Another observation is just to, uh, to reiterate, people didn't like Jesus. Even though he was living perfectly, perfectly faithful to the Father, he made people mad, and people slandered him. And he actually tells us that this will happen. If you just flip back a couple pages to Matthew 5, when he wraps up the Beatitudes, he makes a huge point of saying, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he reiterates, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says that will happen uh, to followers, uh, to his disciples, and that we'll be blessed because we get the kingdom. We can experience life with God under his rule. This is decidedly not being slandered or persecuted because just, you know, we're being lazy. Like if your boss is hard on you because you're not doing a good job, uh, that's not persecution for Jesus' sake. But I guess it's just important to note that Jesus did not have a sterling rep reputation. He wanted to uh, disabuse you of the lie that uh, if we were good enough, if we did everything right, or if we... Uh, we're different than everybody would like us, that there's a way to live where everybody likes you because not even everybody liked Jesus. And then if you aspire or claim to uh, follow Jesus, to apprentice your life to him, 
Uh, is there space in your understanding of following him to, to, to be you, yourself, be slandered and not like because of something you do as you follow Jesus? I'm not talking about posting on Facebook some like pseudo-political thing to get a fight going. I'm talking about like obeying Jesus uh, by welcoming outsiders or like maybe having a married gay couple over for dinner or opening yourself up to all the criticism and scrutiny of the government by entering in the mess of the foster care system because that's where the, the orphans are. It's crazy how uh, following Jesus, how doing the things he calls us to do can garner slander and criticism, even when you do it from a, a place designed to, to glorify God. But this all comes from Jesus' heart. Look with me at the next chunk, starting in verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I get, I get so uh, hyped up on what Jesus is doing that I, I miss what those actions show me about who he is and what he's like. Jesus went everywhere sharing glad tidings of good news of life with God under his rule, healing diseases. Why did he do that? Do you see his heart underneath that? His heart for people. His life was full of people, broken people, full of people who didn't understand him fully or rightly, full of people who just wanted stuff from him, who needed stuff from him. And all the moms said amen. What does this show us? It shows us that his love led to a huge expenditure of energy. It shows us his love in action, that his love and compassion for people moved him towards them allowing them to mess up and interrupt his life. I think it's safe to say that what Jesus is doing here was a superhuman expenditure of energy, that he was loving not out of just the resources, the capacity that he had in his own humanness, but he, he loved and expended himself as a spirit-filled son of God, what he received from God the Father. I think it's important to just see the, the fullness of what Jesus is doing here, the, his heart for people. Some of us, we might resonate with smart, articulate teacher Jesus, who is profound and offer insight, preaching and teaching uh, all around. And so we like to try to do that. We study and we talk and we listen to podcasts. Um, and people who don't read or study uh, they, they might be doing it wrong or they're missing the truth. And then others of us might be big-hearted doers, and we just want to be with people and just help them and get into the issues with them and, and help make their lives better. You know, don't tie me up with doctrine or tough love. Like, let me just fix problems and be there for people. It feels so good to be needed just like Jesus. But here we see Jesus teaching and preaching and also touching people and healing people, stepping into their immediate present-day suffering. Academic types, we got to see teaching and practice go hand in hand. Truth that doesn't transform our actions is pointless. And to all our big-hearted servant types, you know, maybe pick up a book because ultimately, uh, what people need is Jesus and 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 not your help. Either way, Jesus of the Bible saw 
people. He was full enough in his soul, filled up by the love of the Father, that he was able to look out and have compassion on them. And I was just so fascinated by this word compa- compassion uh, in this passage, because uh, in, in the Greek, in the original language, it's one word, splonk nizomai. Uh, it's basically compassion, the noun, uh, put into a verb. It's like to have it or to do it, to like compassion somebody. Uh, and it's a really cool thing because uh, it comes from the, the Greek word for bowels, which is splanknon, and gut or entrails. So we just have, we get to see Jesus with this deep gut level tenderness and compassion for people. We see him looking up, like his gut uh, didn't draw his attention to himself, but his gut poured out uh, his attention on others with deep compassion. He sees them harassed and helpless, and he's not like, come on, guys, get it together. He's not like, uh, you should just do these things, but he just had compassion because he saw them as harassed and helpless, shepherdless sheep. Before we might get down on ourselves thinking, I just need to have more compassion in my bowels. Let's stop. Just let me ask you, do you see Jesus looking at you? Do you he's not too busy. He's not wishing you were further along. No, he sees you with splonk nizomai in his gut, desiring to be your shepherd. Do you feel harassed and helpless by life? We hear the call of the good shepherd. We read that this past week in our uh, same, hashtag same page summer Bible reading plan, or if you're doing that with us as a church family. In John 10, that he's the true shepherd, that he lays down his life for his sheep. Sure, we want the character of Christ. Like, this is not a, a punt on having the compassion of Christ for other people. But I'm just saying we don't get that compassion by trying or to try to be inspired uh, by Jesus. We get it by receiving it from him. We abide in Jesus. We draw our life from him, and then we pass it on in bearing fruit. Friend, Jesus looks at you with tender compassion. Do you feel overwhelmed and confused by life? See the good shepherd, full of grace and power, looking at you. He sees you. You're not alone. Out of this compassion comes Jesus' brilliant plan. Let's look at that. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So Jesus looks at the crowds with compassion and he institutes his brilliant plan, which is prayer, to pray for God, to send out workers into his harvest. And then Jesus, God in the flesh, sends out imperfect, partially trained apprentices to continue his mission. That's it. That's the brilliant plan. We're going to pray for workers, and then we're going to send them out. Matthew is showing us uh, a little bit of a snapshot of how Jesus interacted with his disciples. In in chapters 5, 6, and 7, he gives this very extended, the longest single teaching we have of Jesus altogether. And he gave that to his disciples. And then chapters 8 and 9, he takes them down off the mountain, and they start doing stuff. Like he's calling other disciples He is healing people, casting out demons. He's he's walking all around, interacting with all kinds of different situations. And then he calls them to go and do it. 
think it's super important to read chapter 9, verse 38, and chapter 10, verse 1 together. Because the chapters and verses, they're, they're not divinely inspired. Like, they just help us find stuff in Scripture. God wasn't like, and this shall be chapter 10. But he says, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. And then he called his twelve disciples to, them, to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and heal every disease and sickness. Eugene Peterson translates it, The prayer was no sooner prayed than it was answered. A couple of things we see about Jesus here. First, the harvest is plentiful. When Jesus looked out at the just rampant brokenness of the world, harassed and helpless people, he, he didn't have a mindset of scarcity. Of, uh, that he looked at the world and saw all these lost, helpless sheep was just like a question of how are we going to get all this fruit in? Like how are we going to reap this incredible harvest? When Jesus looked at a lost and dying world, his question wasn't like, what are we going to do with them? His question was like, who wants to join me in bringing these people in? And we can watch the news or listen to fear-mongering podcasts and think, oh, what are we going to do if the liberals take over? Or what are we going to do with the transgender agenda that's going on? Or what are we going to do with this neo-communism uh, that's, go that's going on? Or what are we going to do with the alt-right What's going to become of church and Christianity? But Jesus looked out at the world. He saw the broken people, people who are just so, seem to be so like categorically opposed to his way of life. And he says, the harvest is ready. People are lost. And they're just waiting to hear the glad tidings of good news, of life with God being available to them by grace. There's no reason to despair because God is Lord of the harvest. The next thing we see about Jesus is that he never intended to work alone. This is like the difference uh, between Je seeing Jesus as like, like a Hall of Famer or a master electrician. Like a Hall of Famer, you just like watch highlight reels and you just relive the glory days of how incredible he was on the field and all the incredible things he did and you just kind of soak in it. But a master electrician, you go to work with them and the master electrician is training other apprentices, other soon-to-be electricians, to go out into the world and light it up. So, Does your picture of Jesus, does the Jesus you like have authority to send people out into a broken world, to send you into a broken world? Because we can't follow the true Jesus of the Bible without seeing that at some point he's going to call us to die to ourselves and to live for others, to have that same gut level compassion that same lifestyle of just being for people he calls us to that he calls us just like him to have compassion on people and expend energy that we don't have in and of ourselves in service to others and the last thing i want us to see today is that jesus gives power and authority to his disciples look again at, at 10 verse 1 he called his disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So we just got done looking at two chapters showing Jesus doing this, having authority over nature, having authority over illness and sickness and disability and demon possession. We've been looking at Jesus' authority for months now, and now we see the mind-blowing reality of the way of Jesus is that he never intended to keep that authority all to himself, but he gives it to his followers. And this is just such a mind-blowing thing. It's just so un, uh, uh, an underrated reality of the Jesus of, Bi Jesus of the Bible. 
that he just never intended his his apprentices to just like fledgle along, kind of kind of hoping hoping just to make it to the next church service or asking you know whatever the joke is, prayer request for your cat's hernia or you know just stressing about retirement plans. He called he gives them authority to be his agents to be agents of the kingdom into a broken world. And I just want to unpack this for a minute with a couple other verses. John 14, 12 uh, is right in the middle of the, f- the farewell discourse. Jesus is kind of like last teaching, just the last things he wanted to share with just his inner crew, his 12 disciples before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and was betrayed and crucified. And what he says is, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will, do, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now this is a pretty, uh, pretty intense verse. It would be super fun to unpack it all the way, but suffice it to say that in this context, Jesus is promising them the Holy Spirit, that he'll go to the Father and the Helper, the Holy Spirit will come. And then he says you will do greater works than these, greater works than what Jesus did. What does he mean? Well, there's lots of debates, and most people uh, come to land on the understanding that he means greater as in more, like uh, an abundance more. If Jesus was one man doing the works of one man filled with the Spirit, then if all of his apprentices throughout all time uh, filled with the Spirit would, would do the same stuff, there just would be lots, of, lots more of them. But whatever he means, there seems to be widespread agreement when he, when he says greater works, he doesn't mean less. By greater, he doesn't, he doesn't mean less. And after he raises from the dead uh, in John 20, a few chapters later, verses 21 through 22, he says, uh, right before he ascends to the Father, peace be with you, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had received this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So he sends his apprentices, not alone, but with the spirit, with the resources beyond themselves to do the work. And then lastly, in Acts 1, it shows him saying right before, the very last thing before he drops the mic, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus intended for his apprentices to receive power, to receive authority when the Spirit comes upon them. And we see in that Acts, 8, Acts 1 8 that just because of the fact that we have the Spirit, we are now de facto witnesses. We testify to what we've seen and experienced because we have the empowering presence of God with us. The Bible, the Jesus of the Bible, assumes and expects his apprentices to, to do the work he's done. He's given them authority, and he promises the power to do it. The good news here is that we can look at the call of Jesus, and and Lord willing, we see like, oh, I can't actually do that in my own strength, in my own capacity, with my own specific resources. I can't do that. So we receive power from the Spirit. We see Jesus as the sending shepherd in, in our sermon text today, and this is a powerful combination. He's tender. He's looking at helpless, harassed sheep with compassion deep in his gut. And then he's sending, <laughs> he's sending helpless sheep into the world, not on their own, but with power, the empowering presence of God himself. 
the Jesus of the Bible wants to both wants to comfort and heal and tend us as sheep, and he also wants to comfort and heal and tend us as sheep by sending us out with power into the world. Right after Jesus says this and ascends into and going back to Acts uh, 1.8, the whole book of Acts con- continues with these goofball, confused disciples that we've been reading about all in the Gospels going on this epic saga of adventure, spirit-filled miracles and power and turning the world upside down. Spirit-filled apprentices of Jesus can do incredible things in the world we see in Scripture. Now, just a, a, a self-awareness moment, if you, if you will. As I grow in self-awareness and see how I'm wired, I just got to acknowledge that sending Jesus is like my crack cocaine. Crack cocaine. Cocaine. I don't know what that is. I get so hyped and jacked up on Jesus' mission and the, the promise of power to push back darkness and see stuff healed and made better in Jesus' name. And maybe some of you feel the same way. But I, I've also been the, the pastor here long enough to know that I think most of us, we just feel completely tapped by life. Like we're, we're more identifying, if we were honest, with the, the harassed and helpless sheep. Like just life, just work and family and maybe a little bit of church, you know, just kind of taps us. Without even considering sending Jesus, the sending shepherd, telling us to be witnesses to the end of the earth. In many ways, this intense, this uh, authority delegating Jesus that sends us out can, might feel evil. It might feel scary or even unloving because it feels like, how could you ask me to do that when you know how tapped I am? I think what could be happening there is that he's coming after our control. He's coming after our desire to keep life manageable in our own strength and not need the spirit. Like We have our life that we have a box and we fit our life into it. We can't take anything else in our box. And Jesus is explicitly calling us to, compl- to get rid of the bucks, to do something that is, that is beyond what we can do on our own, that we can control on our own, something that requires us to feel our weakness and depend on him. The first thing to do is to be honest with God about that. If that's where you're at, if you feel Jesus coming after the container of your life that for more or less is working, is, is holding together, then... We can, we can obey him here and, and pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers, including ourselves. Father, I'm so scared. I feel so tapped already, so overwhelmed already. Hold me, shepherd. I want to obey. I want to be this compassionate person expending myself. Or if you're not there yet, even a step back would be, I want to want to be compassion, compassionate. Now I just want to be left alone with Netflix, but I want to be that person that has compassion for others in Jesus' name because Jesus had compassion on me. We can be honest because we know that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died. Jesus expended himself completely for all of our sin, not just our obvious sins, but also for the, the unbelief that keeps us in fear and keeps us focused on our, the little box of our lives keeps us focused on ourselves rather than others, even though we're not maybe doing drugs or uh, sleeping around or something like that. Our lives are small and and, and in disobedience to Jesus' call to love others. We can be honest about that because Jesus saw all of that and loved us. He saw all of our selfishness 
uh, and had compassion on us and died for us. He died for the, the unbelief that would cause us to look at Jesus dying on the cross and say, that's not enough. I need more money, more downtime, a better relationship or uh, more people to like me. He died for us, for the, the, those things that would ca cause us to look at the gospel and say, I need more. When we see Jesus on the cross dying for our sin, our weakness, and our selfishness, we can then see Jesus risen from the dead with nail-pierced hands saying, you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit. We know he's not lying because that same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, Romans says. He's not trying to get us to do something he was unwilling to do. He's not trying to get us to expend ourselves more than he was willing to expend himself. And he promised to be with us until the end of the age. Friend, the invitation today is to see Jesus as he is, with compassion for you. He sees you where you are, and he invites you to find your life by losing it. Find your life by getting rid of the box. He paid the price for any mistake you, you've ever made and all the mistakes that, that we'll make going forward seeking to be his apprentice so we can boldly follow him. We can step boldly and mess up boldly uh, and take courage facing our fear, acting in spite of our fear, uh, not, not waiting for it to go away, but seeing it and acting boldly because we know that Jesus has already overcome the world. Let me pray.